morning, church. Great to uh, be with you today. A couple of things coming up on the calendar that you need to know about. One is we partner with Arvada High School to help them do a sports camp for kids in the area. Um, now, the, the benefit is all for Arvada High School. We try to serve them and so that they can help kids get excited about playing sports for Arvada High School instead of transferring and going to another school. And so we come across, uh, come around the athletic program at Arvada High and help them pull off a camp. It is July 26th through 29th. It's in the evenings from 6 to 8. We are going to help them check kids in. We're going to help get kids to their stations. And we're going to help serve refreshments and uh, a, a big uh, family hot dog dinner at the end of the week. And so if you'd like to be a part of it, you can go to our website, check out the events page, um, sign up. And uh, you can even register your kids. Uh, we're trying to figure out the link to that. So we, once we have that, we'll let you know. But you can register your own kids to be a part of this as well. The other thing I want to let you know is on July 8th, um, it's a Thursday night. We're going to be at Majestic View Park as a whole church. We're going to barbecue together. Uh, the church is going to take care of uh, meat and, and drinks. You bring sides to share. It's going to be a blast. Bring your kids. Bring friends and family if you'd like. There's going to be some field games. The playground and just being together on a Thursday night on a beautiful um, on a beautiful night together so make sure you're a part of that as well okay we are in week two of the hinge the hinge is the change from the the first half of Mark's account of Jesus to the second the first half is Jesus teaching and announcing the kingdom of God displaying it the second one is he's he's not the not the king, you know, not the Messiah that they were expecting. And so it's basically a journey to the cross. And we up to this point have seen Jesus do some amazing things. Healing, teaching, uh, confronting. And he's been doing it mainly around the Sea of Galilee. So whether it's on the Jewish side of the lake or the Gentile side of the lake, but he's been around the kind of more north side of the people of Israel. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, and he ends up on a mountaintop. Uh, but as Luke put it in his, in his gospel, he says in Luke 9, 51, that he intently set his face to go to Jerusalem, that there was a, there was a shift in Jesus. And that he knew it was time to head towards Jerusalem. And remember the key questions that Jesus is wrestling out of the disciples and wrestling out of us is, who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? And that is the big question for us. That keeps uh, coming up in us and should keep coming up in us as we attempt to follow Jesus. So it says in verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes shone, uh, became dazzling white and whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So Jesus, as he does, he, he definitely uh, sneaks away at times. And at this point, he sneaks away with three of his disciples. And a mountaintop is a, um, who doesn't like a mountaintop, right? A beautiful view. Uh, uh, you can see better. You can see 
things in different ways. And mountaintops throughout scripture have always been places where you connect with God, where you go to be close to God, where you go to hear from God. And so Jesus does this. He goes to a mountaintop and he takes Peter, James, and John. And the story starts off ordinary enough, right? Jesus with his people um, often pulls away from the crowds to pray and rest. Very ordinary. But this is where, at this moment, is where it gets really not ordinary. Um, no sooner do they arrive that Jesus is suddenly transfigured. He's changed. He looks different. He glows. And the text says that his clothes become dazzling white, like bleach white. Um, and it's, it's absolutely otherworldly. It's got to be frightening. And of course, that's precisely what this story is intended to convey is that, oh, this guy is not just a guy. Oh, Jesus is not just a very powerful healing rabbi. He's something more. And so, like I said, from here on, the, the ordinariness ends. And, and there it says in verse 4, And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking to Jesus. I mean, for Peter, James, and John, this is like, whoa. Elijah and Moses are just having a convo, having a chat with Jesus. And so what's the significance of Elijah and Moses? Well, theologians and commentators really all point to this idea of that the presence of Moses and Elijah along with Jesus is intended to convey and demonstrate that the Old Testament law, Moses, and the Old Testament prophets, Elijah, come together in relationship with Jesus. Meaning, and you've probably heard me say this before, but in scripture, we learn that Jesus is not only a prophet, but he's a priest and he's a king. And it's this idea, all these three, these three um, human beings um, in Israel's history together. Uh, Matthew 5, 17, this is Jesus. He says that, don't, don't misunderstand why I've come. He's telling people, he says, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Meaning, I didn't come to to cut loose the Old Testament. I didn't come to cut loose the law and cut loose the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And so it's important for Peter, James, and John because they're seeing Jesus and he's not slamming the door on the Old Testament. He's not relegating the Old Testament to some has-been kind of thing. He's opening up a new door to the future. And What's important for you and me to understand is that the Old Testament is not this, some of you think this, or you've been led to believe this by the way certain people teach or whatever, that the Old Testament is God angry with us, and the New Testament, God's nice to us. In the Old Testament, God's mean and wrathful, and, and there's all these rules. In the New Testament, it's all about grace and do whatever you want. And those are completely false narratives. The Old Testament and New Testament together are the complete work of God trying to communicate with his, his, his creation, with us. And the Old Testament law and the Old Testament prophets are embraced and affirmed in Jesus. So check this out in verse 9. And this is Peter again. He's our favorite character who opens his mouth. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters 
as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. So I can imagine they were terrified. Not only are they in the presence of Moses and Elijah, but Jesus is like glowing. He's like a glowing ember. Things are just wild, but pretty incredible. And so Peter is trying to think to himself, okay, how do we keep this buzz going, right? Like, how, how do we stay right here? How, how, this is the peak. This is the mountaintop. This is what it's all about. How do we keep this how it is? And, and here's just a little side thing. I was reflecting a little bit on Judas and Peter. You know, we know the story of Judas and we know the story of Peter. But at this moment in the lives of the disciples, my guess is that Judas was a little bit more celebrated than Peter um, in, in many ways. I mean, we read that Judas was the one who took care of the money of the disciples, of this little traveling band, that he was, that he was shrewd, that he was cunning, he was politically connected. He almost had a street smarts and a people skills kind of thing going for him. And Peter's this just bumbling idiot compared to like, you know, compare the two. Like Judas never really opens his mouth. Peter's just like, blah, blah, Jesus. You know, and it's like, we see the difference now. I mean, we know now that Judas is like synonymous with a betrayer. And Peter goes on to have, in a sense, sainthood, you know, if, for lack of a better word. I mean, he's celebrated. I don't know. I find it interesting because Peter's always opening his mouth. And perhaps the most important aspect of this story, though, is what happens next. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, whenever a cloud appeared, it was, it was uh, symbolic of God's presence hovering over the people. And, and obviously this setting is on a mountaintop. And what's interesting in Mark's account is God opens his mouth to usher in the first half of Mark's, in a sense, narrative of who Jesus is. And then God's voice is, starts the second half as well. First half is at the baptism of Jesus. The second half is right here. And what's interesting is that he, God is saying, listen to him. I mean, this comes straight out of Deuteronomy 18, that there would be a messenger of God. There would be, uh, you know, a person that would come from God and, and you must listen to him. This comes out of Deuteronomy 18. Um, and so while Moses and Elijah are, are, spoke on behalf of God in their lifetimes, Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, the authorized agent, the, the exact representation, as we hear in Hebrews, of who God is. And, and so what's so significant about Moses and Elijah being there is these are both two characters who rejected the luxuries of the royal courts and suffered the consequences of confronting defiant rulers. Both of these two characters were, were, were in Jesus's presence here. So remember last week in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples as they were walking along, and Jesus asked two questions. Remember, who do people say I am, and who do you say I am? 
And the conversation was uh, right after a healing of a blind man who, who was a two-stage healing. First, he didn't see totally clearly, and then he, then he saw completely clear. And in some ways, that is a metaphor for how we see Jesus, how the disciples at this point have seen Jesus. They kind of see him kind of fuzzy right now. Uh, they don't see him clearly. And all through Scripture, it talks about seeing and hearing. That they may open their hearts and see. They may open their ears and hear. And I will be their God. This whole idea goes all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus' true identity is of utmost importance. Because it's a critical question uh, then for these guys. And it's a critical question for us right now. See, the, the Bible says nothing about what Jesus looked like. Um, I mean, in fact, it... I mean, Isaiah 53 is the closest thing. It says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his, in his appearance that we should desire him. I was, I, was looking, I was looking all over this church. There, there's a Bible study happening. I was looking all over this church for this picture of Jesus that they had hanging. And it's this, like, I used to call it the Mormon Jesus. It's this pasty white very clean, like recently showered Jesus with makeup on and, and blonde hair and a part down the middle. And um, I was looking for that because I thought it would be really cool to show you, but I can't find it. Um, and so the reality is, is like, I just hint, hint, wink, wink. Nobody in the Bible, not one character in the Bible is a pasty white guy. Not one. Not one is a Anglo-European pasty white dude or lady. So let that kind of sink in. And hopefully it rattles around in your hearts a bit too. But, um, you know, what's interesting is Jesus was never conveyed as somebody who was attractive or strong or big or tall or any of those things. We don't have any physical descriptions of Jesus. So it's really interesting because our perceptions of who Jesus is, not just what he looked like, but who Jesus is, is, is really primary and very important. And this gets into back to what we talked about last week. And it's so important that we keep talking about it. Because just as God wanted Peter, James, and John to know who Jesus is and to listen to him, to listen to him. And by listening to him, what did he say the week before? He said, literally it was the week before because it says after six days. But um, he said, listen to him. Jesus before said, the servant, the Messiah has to go suffer and die. Has to be rejected by the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And here is a voice from the cloud saying, you need to listen to him. Like, this is legit. Listen. And, and the word listen is not just hear. Listen is, is to orient your life around it. Like, turn your shoulders in that direction. That's why Pete, when Jesus says, Peter, get behind me, you're my adversary. He wants Peter to actually follow him and not be in his way. And what's problematic for you and I is that we have versions of Jesus that are in the way of who Jesus actually is. 
I mean, we have therapist Jesus that um, he wants to heal our past and he wants us to not be so hard on ourselves. Okay? We have open mind to Jesus, maybe, uh, that is, you know, he loves everyone all the time, no matter what, and um, except for people who are not open-minded. He doesn't love them. Um, touchdown Jesus, this is, you know, Jesus shows up when my team wins kind of a thing. Hallmark platitude Jesus, um, who kind of shows up at Christmas specials and um, holidays, uh, the greeting cards, just to inspire people. You know, coffee cup verse Jesus. You have Democrat Jesus, Republican Jesus, right? You have um, revolutionary Jesus that is uh, a little bit more of an activist and um, you know, a rioter, um, that version of Jesus. And then there's Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. The Son of the living God. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood and the projection of our own desires. This is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, sacrificial lamb, more loving, more holy, more wonderfully merciful, gracious, and loving than you and I could ever think possible. Tim Keller writes a book called Counterfeit Gods, and in it he talks about the versions of Jesus that we worship. And he finishes a passage talking about this and how the outcome of worshiping or portraying Jesus in a, in a way that is not clear or, or accurate actually gets us into trouble because it creates idolatry for us. Listen to what he writes in his book. He says, when love of one's own, uh, when love of one's people becomes an absolute, it turns into racism. When love of equality turns into a supreme thing, it can result in hatred and violence towards anyone who has led a privileged life. It is, settled, it is the settled tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. Ernest Becker wrote that in a society that has lost the reality of God, many people will look to romantic love to give them the fulfillment they once found in religious experience. Nietzsche, however, believed it would be money that would replace God. But there is another candidate to fill this spiritual vacuum. We can also look to politics. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into kind of a kind of religion. See, there's significance in this cloud, this voice from God. God was, was present there in the cloud on that mountain, and God's voice, and in God's voice, we clearly hear him say, uh, listen, this is my son, listen to him. But when all the fireworks, okay, the glowing ends, Moses and Elijah are gone, there's no more cloud, the fireworks are over, the only thing left was to go back down the mountain. Back down the mountain says this in verse 8, Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man was risen 
from the dead. It's another one of those ways that Jesus is like, don't tell anybody yet. So what is the significance of leaving the mountain? I mean, what happened on the mountain doesn't stay on the mountain. I mean, there's something in Peter, James, and John that is stirring. And that is for sure. But what's interesting is Peter doesn't want the mountain to end. He doesn't want the mountain to end because he knows what's coming. He knows that Jesus has said he's going to suffer and die, that he has to be rejected. He knows that all of that is coming. He's like, let's just stay here on the mountain. Let's just stay here. I'll make three huts for you guys. Let's just keep this party going. I came across this poem about this passage of scripture because the passage of scripture is this mountaintop experience. And as we're about to get into, it starts to get pretty crazy. Poet writes this, on the mountain we encounter almighty God. In the valley, there's an encounter with the demonic. On the mountain, we encounter our faith's heritage. In the valley, we encounter those who consider questions of faith as occasions for battle. On the mountain, God's calming voice is heard. In the valley, human argument is heard. On the mountain, disciples are in a mood for worship. In the valley, the disciples are spoiling for a fight. On the mountain, the glory of God is revealed. In the valley, the power of sin and unbelief is revealed. No wonder why Peter wanted to stay. He wanted to make this place more permanent. He, he wanted to stay on the mountain, but they were called to the valley, to Jerusalem, to the way of suffering and death, the way of the cross. And Peter wanted to make the glory permanent. He wanted to stay. He wanted to hold on to it. He wanted, was hoping that God's purposes can somehow be accomplished without the suffering and the death but Peter was still working on an inadequate version of who Jesus was and what his mission was, and, and he didn't completely get it. Because Jesus actually just spoke about this. Peter was still wrestling with his version of how Messiah would be. Another commentator, Timothy Gombas, puts it this way, the plan of the kingdom takes the shape of the cross and only comes through suffering and death. Any other way is the path of destruction. The disciples flinching at the thought of having joined a movement, think about this, destined for failure and wanting to, wanting to somehow devise an alternative plan. They must attend carefully to Jesus' call to call him on the way to the cross. They must listen. See, the disciples, uh, we're going to see this here in a second, they, were, they weren't struggling with the concept of resurrection. They were struggling with the concept of how we get to resurrection. And they couldn't fathom for the, for, for, uh, for the moment, they couldn't fathom that it came after suffering and death. Verse 10, it says, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does Come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. 
See, the disciples know enough about uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish teaching to know that Elijah's got to come back. And so they're thinking and talking to themselves. And they're like, have we thought of everything? Have we? And then one of them goes, didn't Elijah have to come first? And Jesus kind of breaks their, bursts their bubble a bit. And he's like, yeah, he came again. And commentators believe that was John the Baptist. And that they, the teachers and the religious people and everything, did to him, Herod, what they wanted. Now, what are we going to do from here? Where does this wrap us up today? Scripture speaks of God accomplishing his plan, his saving, God's saving work through suffering and the eventual vindication of his appointed agent. So this is passages like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 118, that God's appointed agent would be would suffer and yet then be vindicated. And he, Jesus kind of uh, makes the disciples' hearts sink when he tells them that the suffering, that Elijah's already come. Now, we get to the kind of what does this mean for us part of this. And um, it may be kind of difficult to grab onto some things. Um, Some of us might have difficulty understanding the way of the cross. Not just the way of the cross, but what does it look like to follow Jesus in this idea of denying ourselves, taking up our cross? That suffering comes with that. That dying to ourselves comes with that. It's something that gets uh, avoided at times in Christian circles. We're pumped about grace. We're super pumped about forgiveness. But this one's really hard. It's very difficult to let go of the way of seeing things that you and I have. Our expectations, our worldview. And when Peter sees the vision of Jesus in his glory, he just totally wants to hold on to it. And I get it. Why can't we have this now? Why can't we keep this? Why can't we have this now? And Paul articulates a lot of this in Galatians. Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, is one of the first, it's literally the first New Testament document in order of being written. Paul writes a letter to the Galatian people, the Galatian people, (laughs) the church in Galatia. And um, it's one of my favorite verses, but it's one of the most tricky ones for me to, to really dive into with my life. It's Paul, and he's saying... 
listen, I've been crucified with Christ. Like all my ambitions, my dreams, the who I was, my personality, all my expectations of who Messiah was has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. And he's telling this to the people of this church because there have been so much false teaching that says, no, you still got to get circumcised. No, you still got to do this. You still got to become Jewish before you become a follower of Jesus. And Paul says, no, 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 no. The people have gotten it wrong for so long about who Messiah is. It's hard to wrap our heads around a Messiah who suffers, who lays down his life. Very difficult. But Paul says, I have to crucify my, myself, my, my desires, my, my way of thinking, my way of living, my way of being, my way of, of my ambitions. I, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. And he says, like the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. This leads Paul to living in a completely different way in the world. This isn't Paul's um, magnum opus to, uh, to hide, to run away, to give up on the world, to shut the door on everybody else. No, this is Paul's way of living in a completely new way in the world. His life is now wrapped up completely in the life of Jesus Christ. And he conducts the remainder of his time on earth, okay, as a living embodiment of the life of Jesus. And the way this works out for Paul is by letting go of the assertion of his own rights, of his own quest for power, of his own ambitions. And that's what we're called to do. Because following Jesus down the mountain into the valley actually means the same thing. And so this morning, I mean, these, these last two, this week and last week are kind of a, a really important time for us to reflect on how we see God, how we see Jesus, how we see his plan on earth. And to reorient our lives around that. And the table is the perfect way to do it. The communion table is the chance for us to reimagine our lives. To lay down those things in our lives that are not congruent with following Jesus. To lay down those ideas and expectations and ambitions and crucify them. Picking up the life of Christ. Picking up uh, the body of Jesus. Ingesting it into our own that the, the life I now live, I live by faith. Christ lives in me. This is a, a physical act that is a beautiful spiritual act, ingesting Christ. And that's why we pass the bread. And in your house churches, you're going to do that together right now. And then, and then the cup comes by, and the cup is part of what it looks like to not only remember the sacrifice of Christ, uh, but partake in it.
that we sacrifice as well. That the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is death. It's dying to ourselves. It's crucifying these iterations of myself again and again and again and again. And that five years from now, 10 years from now, closer and closer I become to being like my rabbi. So let me pray and let you take communion together. Father, thank you for these moments that we can pause, wrestle, repent, hear. Forgive. Hope. God, that is what your table is for. The table throughout Scripture culminating in the Last Supper. God, may we come to the table with all that we know of ourselves and all we think we know about Jesus and bring those two together by taking in the body and the blood of our Messiah. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.